This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooker. Stan Grant is everyone's favourite person to associate being Australian with. Um, Australian is not an identity Stan would necessarily accept. Uh, And I thought um, what I would do today is read a short excerpt from Stan's exceptional new new book called The Queen is Dead. Pitch, can I I just interrupt as well? Just remember, like, we're not quite on YouTube yet, so you just wrote your book. To the screen to be like, oh, this is what I'm reading. People <laughs> listening can't see that book. I just thought I'd add to the atmosphere. Look, sorry for enriching <laughs> your experience. <laughs> so Stan is the uh, child of a Wiradjuri um, father and um, Stan's mother has uh, Camilla Roy background. And so he has a complex identity because he's a thought leader in this country and has uh, complex views that, uh, right-thinking people among us agree with entirely. Um, and so what I thought I would do is say everything Stan Grant says is right and I encourage you to adopt every single view he has in every way and to buy this book. But he has a paragraph about ghosts that I thought was very, very spooky where Stan says, and sorry, if you can hear that voice, we're going to tell you who it is really, really <laughs> soon and you should be excited. Um, Stan Stan has a reflection on the nature of ghosts, right? He's He's reflecting on the White Queen, the death of um, Elizabeth, what's her surname, Windsor, or Elizabeth Saxon Coburg. She died a little bit ago. Stan's got reflections on it, and those reflections are not particularly warm and fuzzy about the monarchy and the role the White Queen has played. And so he reflects on whiteness, on colonisation, on oppression, and uh, he has a reflection on ghosts. And so I thought I might share this from page 42 of The Queen is Dead. Ghost stories are always a warning. They are about now, not then. They are about us, who we are, not the faint traces and smoky forms that slide in and out of the walls. What we see, what we glimpse out of the corner of our eyes, is ourselves. Spectres live in our imaginings. They're conjured out of our own conscience. They are a shadow world of our own making. These are the ghosts that haunt the world now. These are the ghosts hissing at the world that's now. awesome oh my god he's the fucking greatest like and i would listen to him talk about cricket talk about ghosts definitely talk about the monarchy definitely talk about politics so um we just need to get this voice on and empowered to talk wow. so can i talk about the fifa uh, women's world cup going on <laughs> at the moment um right thinking people among us have got tickets right me and the golden children and the co-parent that i'm raising the golden children with heading in early August to Stadium Australia to cheer. Hopefully, the Matildas against Ireland is what I'm expecting. But the first incarnation of the Matildas against Ireland was a couple of weeks ago, and shots of the crowd are always boring. 
unless you catch a meta textual shot of someone who understands they're being filmed, who understands what broadcast television is about. And our next guest was the unquestionable uh, star of the Matilda's Island FIFA Women's World Cup game the other day, Alexi Toliopoulos, crowd member uh, the other week. I also need to add one other bit of admin having had Alexi on here. The algorithm just served me an interview with Conan O'Brien, whose views Shag and I agree with in almost every single way. And he shares a reflection on how he knew Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise were always winners and always guns. And it's because they learned everyone's names and they showed up early. So to someone who went to, who was the star of the materials <laughs> the other week, uh, someone who showed up early today, someone who's got a new podcast, special features we also need to talk about, Alexi Toliopoulos, a great big Spooko. Welcome wow. to you. Wow. My pleasure to come back onto Spooko. I love you guys. I'm so happy to be here. And Peach, I'll tell you this. I got more messages for my <laughs> three or four second cameo at the Matilda game than any other TV appearance I've ever done. And let the record show, you were the first to tell me that I was on yes! TV. I'm so glad it's on the record. Yes, yes, yes. You were the first message I received. And then it was a cavalcade of others going like, hey, was that you? Will Anderson sent me the video of, of it. Like, he filmed it with his phone. And then I got messages from, like, comedy friends in England that were watching it live. Like, it was... um. You know, I've been on TV a bunch of times. I've never had anything like this. <laughs> yeah, it's the peach effect. And all I yeah. did was, all I had to do was, like, I knew where the camera was and I stared at it longingly and then there we go. I'm- no, there were depths, Alexi, in your eye contact staring, staring down the camera that, 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 that resonated in a stadium full of about 76,000 supporters. It was a brilliant performance. We expect nothing less from you. Okay, Jack, well, look, sorry. Every single time Alexi joins this pod, he's got something new and exciting he's working on currently you have a new pod called special features tell us a little bit about it uh so it's me and cameron james my creative comedy partner teaming up once again uh it's kind of a reboot of total reboot the podcast we've been doing for years but we wanted to focus less on individual films and more on you know pop culture and culture for I guess, you know, to explore things a bit differently. We kind of do things differently every few years and we want to try something new. And it's been really fun. So far, we've done episodes about the best films of the year so far. And now we did one about Barbie and Oppenheimer and I'm already freaking copping the heat for doing so. (laughs) Tell us, because, yeah, you've just released an episode about Barbenheimer. Mm -hmm. What's your take on the... The first film in that duo. I think there's a lot to love in Barbie. Uh, it personally just didn't work for me as a whole. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't know how else to say it. I'm still grappling with uh, people not agreeing with my take on it, but I just think it was, it's a lot to love. It's a bit of a mess. Usually I love a messy movie, but it just, didn't quite really work for me because uh, it is quite like, you know, a corporate film. And uh, every year we have corporate films all the time. They're usually superhero <laughs> movies. Uh, this one is different and connects with people a lot deeper emotionally. And I recognize that and I'm envious of it. It just did not work for little old me. And I'm devastated by that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say one thing before uh, we move on. I think right now... I just am butting up against the things that don't work for me. But when it becomes an artifact, it'll be more interesting to kind of look at what it's talking about right now. 
I like I don't want to and I don't want to show you how much I've adopted Callan's line about opening too many tabs. I don't want to open too many tabs, but it sounds like a real sort of Josie and the Pussycats kind mm. of cultural artifact that there'll be a kind of reevaluation of like, hey, like what was that thing that that, mm. that everyone got excited about? But special features. It's like we don't want to linger on names because who gives a shit about names, but it's a really aptly named podcast because it sort of recalls the height of the DVD era Mm -hmm. where you'd enjoy a film and you'd be like, how did they do that stunt that was the peak of the second act? Or like, what would it be like to have the director and the lead actor goofing around while they're watching the movie? Um, So it's a real lovely deep dive into its special features with Alexi Toliopoulos and Cameron James. (laughs) You have to listen to it. Thank you. All right, Spooko (laughs) is currently in our friendship homework era where as we approach episode 200 we've been asking people to tell us the films that they want us to cover whether it's a film that they haven't seen or it's a film they've seen you know there's there's definitely people in both camps who are like i've seen this film i want to hear peach's take on it and it's always mm. they want to hear peach's take on it or i've seen or I have, like i'm too scared sucks. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm freaked out to see this film but i want to hear it like i want to hear more about it and overwhelmingly the film that most people wanted to hear about, whether it was because they were too scared to watch it or because they've seen it and they want to hear Peach's take on it, was an obscure Australian film that, honestly, I don't think I'd heard about it until this year from 2007 called Lake Mungo. Alexei, like, I really wanted to bring you back. And, in mm-hmm. fact, I've been holding off till we could secure you back on the show because I really wanted someone <laughs> who really understood deeply Australian film to, to sort of comment and unpack this film because, like I said before, I hadn't heard of this film until this year. When did you first become aware of Lake Mungo? Wow, thank you for securing me to talk about Lake Mungo. <laughs> um, I think I would have heard about it 2008, maybe, because this was like a DVD store era discovery for me when I used to work at a video shop uh, as a teenager. And I remember seeing it on the shelf in the Australian film section. And like you, I had not heard of this movie and immediately became something of like a point of interest because I think in the past on this podcast, I've been on to talk about at least one other found footage kind of faux documentary type uh, horror movie, which was Paranormal Activity 3. And I think... It's a it's a kind of genre that I'm just I, I subgenre that I really love in horror. Um, you know, I'm the right age for when it came back and like when it became like the mainstream horror um, subgenre. And Lake Mungo in particular, I think, is a really really interesting example because unlike Blair Witch Project and unlike the Paranormal Activity series, uh, it is really aligned with faux documentary more so than found footage. And I think that what this film does so beautifully is that it never breaks the spell of it being a documentary. I think it works really, really beautifully. And over the last couple of years, it has had not a cultural reevaluation. I think there's always been a lot of love for this movie, but I think it has kind of reached a out a little bit more like people have started talking about it more as an unheralded classic of Australian horror it's had like new restorations new release DVD releases Blu-ray releases and stuff and it even screened at the art gallery of New South Wales I think last year or the year before so it's I think there's a, a new conversation happening around this movie why don't we contribute to it? <laughs> well, before I do I like I, I had one question I wanted to ask you and I think you've kind of already answered it 
Because, mm-hmm. and, and this is actually one of the reasons I wanted you on the pod to ask you this question. Because you can't call it a mockumentary if it's not funny, can you? So it's a faux documentary? Uh, I think that, I don't know what the terminology is. Mockumentary is something I do usually associate with like comedic uh, parody or satirical films. I think faux documentary is kind of usually what I, is the term that I usually use, but I... I don't know. I think I don't think I don't know. I don't know what the actual terminology is. Curated, found, just created footage. Yeah, well, well, well yeah, Peach, okay. like to like what Alexei said is really important. Mm. Um, and you know, we're going to jump into the trailer in a sec. But mm. it's really important to note that this is not a found footage film. It's mm-hmm. set up like a documentary, and f- for better or worse, that's why it's as effective as I think it is. So. Today, um, as Alexei said, like this is a Australian horror classic that in the last couple of years has resurfaced in horror cultural consciousness. Peach, I'm so excited to be recapping for you today 2007's psychological horror faux documentary, <laughs> <laughs> Lake Mungo. Let's get it. I feel like. Something bad is going to happen to me. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. Family and friends the normally tranquil Harlan setting of Ararat's to pay their final respects to a young woman taken too soon. Ten days after Ellie's funeral, stuff started happening around the house. Sounds seemed to come from Ellie's old room. They didn't really relent, so I thought, well, I'll just set up a camera to, you know, I see anything. I looked back and there was footage of a figure moving across the hallway. The image was quite unsettling because it certainly looked like Alice. Don't you close your eyes? I usually uh, videotape my sessions. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. We checked the tapes. There was a ghost in our house. kept secrets she kept the fact she kept secrets a secret something bad is going to happen to me alice knew she was going to die i feel like something bad has happened it hasn't reached me yet but it's on its way it's getting closer this trailer is part of the reason i'll draw that but leave it in because it's important to show that people <laughs> make mistakes and then withdraw their mistakes, Jay. <laughs> um, this is a great example of how the horror averse among us feel about horror films, right? Watching this trailer, I'm like, oh, my gosh, is it really a ghost? How does it turn out? Shag, you're right. I'm desperate to find out what happened to poor old Alice at poor old Lake Mungo. And just before we head uh, into it in depth, I'm married to someone uh, who has the name Alice <laughs> and they are constantly infuriated that every fucking weirdo character in fiction um, is called Alice. Like, if you have, like, a weird, like, a murderer, like the murderer in Luther or like, any number of Alices you can conjure, it's always like, I'm a bit of a fucking freaky psycho. My name's Alice. 
<laughs> so it looks like we've got a, it looks like we've got another another version of this. As you know, my partner's name is Adele, and I can't tell you how many times because it's not a common name in Australia. I'll be like, "Well, Adele said this," and people will be like, "The Adele," and they'll be like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> All right, so mm. this is Lake Mungo. I keep thinking it's kind of a bit of a forgotten Australian classic because it it's a film that I feel like isn't well known within Australia. It's probably more well known outside of Australia. Would you agree mm. with that, Alexi? I think that's a really good call. Yeah, I think it might be because it's. I think cult films kind of often do find that reputation like that, especially cult films from Australia. Um, perhaps it's also like, you know, there's other screen cultures that can see these films more readily now because I think this is... Lake Mungo, I think, is weirdly hard to watch right now. Let me see. Yeah, it's not on any streaming. You can't watch it. The way that I saw is I've got this Blu-ray. I've got this special edition mm. Blu-ray. Oh, Dan, let me tell you, it's an English project. It's an English one. I think there'll be an Australian release of this Blu-ray eventually. Any but, special um, features? Absolutely. <laughs> let me rattle them yes. off for you. We've got an archive audio commentary from producer David Rapesey and DOP John Broly. Then we've got new nice. commentary from Alexandra Heller Nick and Emma Westwood, two great <laughs> film voices. Can you read it all? <laughs> I'll read it all, but I'll, I'll tell you one that's, I think, uh, most key to what we were talking about. Kindred Spirits, filmmakers Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead on Lake Mungo. And they are um, American genre filmmakers that are... Their most high-profile thing that they've done was they directed a bunch of that um, Moon Knight TV series, but mm. they've done, like, a bunch of smaller, like, weird little indie <coughs> uh, horror genre sci-fi fantasy type movies. Um, like, In the Dirt was their latest one, I think. Um, so, it's like, yeah, it's got a big reputation overseas. Not so much seen in Australia. I think they're slowly changing, though. It's definitely changing because it is... It's something that's just being talked about a lot now. People are really excited about it. People, like I said, are constantly asking us to cover it, hence us covering it today. Mm. To the point where you can't actually stream it anywhere in Australia at the moment. You can buy the DVD. You can find the entire thing on YouTube. But what's yep. interesting, each one of them is either a dubbed version from another country or a subtitle version from another country. So oh, wow. I was able to find this morning, I was able to find the Indonesian cut mm. of it i was able to find the spanish or at least oh. the spanish language cut of it oh okay so, nice uh so it, it it's a film that people want to know about so i'm so excited to be an australian podcast actually talking about this film it's probably worth noting that the place that it's named after lake mungo is a real place so it's a dry lake in central new south wales which is the state where sydney's the capital um Australia's a weird place. We only have like 25 million people and most of them are concentrated on the coast. So it's like, I think it's like 900 kilometers from Sydney. So it's in the middle of nowhere. It's this very barren, remote place. And it's also the site of an archaeological discovery, which is Mungo Man and Mungo Woman, hmm. which are, I think outside of, outside of Africa, they are the oldest human remains that have been found. It's a man and a woman dating from around 40 to 50,000 years ago. Hmm. And this is me doing very basic research before this show because it's like I really was like, this is what this film does to you. This film will yeah. make you search out every little factoid. Mm. But it's, you know, it's the reason why it's an important find, not only because they're old, but because, and I don't understand how archaeology works. I assume it's similar to history in which there's a lot of just people deciding, making connections and making things up or whatever. But 
Well, sorry, sorry, sorry. Like, Shag, <laughs> I love you and do continue. But I don't think we're going to say science is a lot of people making things up. I'm not sure that's a, I'm not prepared for this podcast. No, to, to be no I, to I guess position. my thing is it's like you're, you're making, you're drawing a lot of conclusions from the very scant evidence. And it's smart conclusions, but you still don't have the whole story. Anyway, but, but basically why it's important is because there's a theory, this out of Africa theory that humans as we know it basically originated from Africa 100 to 150,000 years ago and all migrated, I think, when maybe the... I Look, I'm not going to go... Like, I don't understand it, but somehow migrated to the other countries. Everyone originated from Africa and this somehow proves that. Anyway, so it's a really important First Nations place mm. in Australia, which feels, number one, really important to how you started the episode, Pete, which, which I think is amazing mm. how in sync we amazing. are. Amazing, yeah. But number two, it feels important... For the story they're telling here, would you agree with that? I yeah, think so. I think that. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Alexa, you go for it. No, I, I was just going to say I think so. I, that's it. <laughs> I was just being silly, just to lighten the mood. I'm afraid I was just goofing about. Um, I shouldn't have interrupted because that ruined the flow. But <laughs> I think um, context is such can or well, can be such an underutilized asset in fiction. And that if you think about, look, uh, uh, like we've got a few nice DMs about deadlock last week and I'm really down to talk about how place mm. can be such an evocative part of a work of fiction. I mean, sea change, like I'm still trying to move to Pearl Bay and that was just a shitty TV yeah. series in Australia like nearly 25 years ago and we occasionally talk about whether I'd be qualified to be a local magistrate somewhere on the mid-north coast to essentially live Sigrid Thornton's life. Um, it, like these ideas of place can really sink under the skin. So, Shag, I, like I, I really, I'm pleased to hear both you and Alexi agreeing that that, that that sort of location, locale, place can be such an evocative um, element, a real palimpsest, if you will, uh, in order to paint a film on top of. Fucking yeah. hell! All right, let's recap this film. This is Lake Mungo. Now, I, I have had to add just a little bit of flavor mm-hmm. to the Wikipedia synopsis. Obviously, you know, this podcast relies on Wikipedia synopses, but every now and then you'll get a synopsis that's like two or three paragraphs long. In this case, it's three paragraphs long, which does not do it justice. So <laughs> I've added. Alice was a teenager. She died. It's a bit spooky. It's basically like that. <laughs> I think, as well, it's a hard movie to translate mm. into synopsis because so yeah. much of it is about form and style of like yeah. how this movie is delivered to you. Um, and I think that it might be hard to do justice in the form of a synopsis, but. That's why I'm excited to hear that you've put a little bit of your own flavor and flair into it. I mean, there's a really important part of this film, though, and I like I, I mean this with the greatest respect for film. <laughs> Can a film both be great and quite boring? Um, yes, I think that's okay. I think that can work. Uh, I think that... I mean, it's it's interesting to it's an interesting thing to put up because I think that so much about film is like emotional resonance, also like the journey and like style and form and stuff. So it can kind of be, you know, perhaps it gives you something to think about. Perhaps it's something that you don't really think about till much later. But uh, you know, there's a lot of movies I love that I would consider quite boring. So the reason the reason I say that is because I, I want to set this up. After I say the first sentence of this synopsis, which is 16-year-old Alice Palmer disappears while swimming with her family at a dam in Ararat, Australia. Important thing to point out, Ararat is hundreds of kilometres away from Lake Monco. 
So don't just be like, it's called Lake Mungo because it's set at Lake Mungo. Actually, most of the film is set mm. in this town of Ararat. Uh, the film is, as we said before, it's a faux documentary. And it's an Australian documentary from 2007. And that's why I mean, like, for the first 30 minutes or so, it's quite boring. And I think that's on purpose because it maybe not even the first 30 minutes, but it's basically like, shot like it's talking head interviews just constantly introducing new people it's like home video footage it's news footage of a girl's disappearance in a small town and i just remember being like i i guess i i just had a lot to do but i just remember at the beginning being like oh my god this is like how am i going to sit through the whole thing <laughs> but then i realized that's kind of the point that the boringness of it i i think in my opinion at least is lulling you into this feeling that this thing is real. And then once the reveals start happening, they feel more impactful. Yeah, yeah. Movies are boring, though. So that's <laughs> often just part of... <laughs> it's tough to sit through any movie, in, in, in fairness. <laughs> so the way it begins, the way we find this out anyway, is we're just seeing like uh, like footage of this town at dusk while we hear snippets of an emergency call. And it's an emergency call where, like, the audio is kind of crappy, so we can't hear everything. But we basically hear someone say that this girl, Alice, has gone missing at this dam. We then introduce to Alice's mom, dad, and brother, Matthew, via Talking Heads interviews, explaining the day of the disappearance, as well as home video including this recurring video of Alice dancing happily. I was like, what does David Byrne have to do with this? I'm such an idiot. I'm like, <laughs> like the Talking Heads interviews. Like, oh, yeah. No, the, yeah, like, then like, the, the Talking Heads appears in the giant yeah, yeah. and everything. Uh, so then we, see, then we see interviews with other characters from the family in town, including Alice's boyfriend, and everyone's just kind of a bit like, these interviews have happened long after Alice's you know, the, the, the events of the film have been resolved. That's the thing that, that, that is a little bit confusing in the timeline is that all the things that are explained in the film happen before these talking heads, I think. Yes, the talking heads. Well, I guess the, there's no movie if there's no disappearance of the girl. Like, they wouldn't be making a documentary, you know, about their life in Ararat <laughs> and stuff. So, I think, to me, that's one of the great, the great aspects of this movie is that you always feel that there is something happening because of its sheer existence. So, they, they're, they're, doing these, they're doing these sort of talking heads interviews while, you know, they're explaining that she's gone missing and no one knows what's going on. Um, there's a search by police divers that goes like into the night Mm. and there's this really lovely line where usually the interviewers are silent, but every now and then you'll hear an interviewer ask a question or they'll include the question. And one of the interviewers says, is there anything you remember from that night to the dad? And the dad's like, oh, I just remember leaving the porch light on. And the interviewer's like, why did you do that? And he's like, because I thought she was going to come home. Hmm. That night, Alice's body is found. The parents are taken there. The police ask them to confirm the body, to identify the body. Mum decides to stay in the car because she doesn't want to go. But dad goes to confirm the body. And I think one of the truly chilling moments of this movie, I don't know if it appears now or if it appears later, is seeing what her, cor- like what her face as a mm. corpse looked like. 
feels very realistic. Like, I haven't seen many corpses in my life, but I guess my point is it doesn't feel like a movie shock horror mm. corpse. It just it just feels like you're... And because of the way the film's set up, it feels like you're looking at a dead girl. Yeah, it does not break from the reality that's creating there. Like, it, it, it's, it is... I mean, it's spooky. It's freaking spooky. <laughs> Don't you reckon? I was actually thinking, like, we it's never grim. use this. We never use this term mm. on Spooko because it kind of feels like the sort of term you'd use to describe, like, you know, like a fucking Taylor Swift song or something. Don't but say authentic not- shag or I'm hanging no, out. No, I think this movie is haunting. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It captures like that kind of. I think it's something that horror movies of this, like these ghostly kind of horror movies, do quite well, which is like the the kind of the murky line between life and death and like between what is between one world and how another world can kind of seep into it. This has a really beautiful spectral seepage, if you will. Mm. And I mean, what's really cool about this is from here, like it's like essentially within like 15, 20 minutes, that boringness subsides and you get into the rhythm of this film. It's quite a slow film. In, t- in the sense that there's no real action or fast-moving quick cuts or anything, but they do quite effectively keep introducing new things to keep your attention. And one of the things I think this film does really well, without you really even knowing it's happening, is introduce a million red herrings. Mm. Like, would you agree yeah. with that? Like, I feel like... It's a swarm of red herrings, absolutely. So, 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 so. Basically, like, from the beginning... And and but I think because of because of movies and especially movies like this, you're trained to be like every element is important. So you know when the family go to identify the body and they're driving home, the dad's like, "Oh, the none of the gears in the w- car would work except the reverse." So we drove nice. in reverse the whole way home. And like I remember the first time watching that, I'm like, mm, "Driving you like you're like oh I'm going to need to remember that." Where I can tell you right now, you don't need to remember that. It's, <laughs> it's it's the last you'll hear about driving in reverse. One of the things I do love about this opening is there are probably like the coolest quote, kind of what you said before about the murky line between life and death. The mum has this line. And again, like if anybody said this in real life, you'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But in this film, it feels like something a real person would say. And she's like, death takes everything eventually. It's the meanest, dumbest machine there is, and it just doesn't care. Mm. Makes you think. So then there's a funeral. And after the funeral, strange noises start coming from the house and from her room as well. So creaky doors, sounds in the attic, stuff like that. So they get a pest inspection. They rehang the doors. But these things still keep happening. And the only wow. way we know this is happening is because literally from Talking Heads interview with members of the family. I just looked at the Wikipedia uh, and you've not read one word from it yet. Oh, I read, I read the first line. I read, so the first line. So the first line happens and then the second line happens and it yep. jumps like 40 minutes into yep. the film. Yeah, I, that's what I just noticed. I was like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. The Wikipedia synopsis is basically like, a girl is lost and then it's resolved. He has failed this movie. He has failed this movie so far. You have been true to the film and the spirit of the film. Um, can, can, I, can I just make a quick comment on, on storytelling technique? I, I feel like using the talking heads to confer reality on the situation is something that's easily dismissed as kind of a cliche, but I think it works so well for a reason of like, you're looking at calm heads who are speaking 
uh, in the present about the past, yes. and 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 it's almost like watching security footage or something. That, that that there's just so much authenticity that comes from um, a reflection after the moment that I can imagine the experience of watching this is like, oh, we're just looking at people reminiscing like in front of a camera. What motive do they have to lie about these experiences? Of course, they're not lying. And so that like legitimacy of the story and and the reality of it, I, I imagine, can really deepen um, with just the use of that technique. Yeah, beautifully put. I think uh, you're pretty spot on. I think in like what the secret source of these kind of faux documentaries are, in that they are kind of building that kind of authenticity. So there's there's all, there's this building level layer of dread as well that you experience the whole way through the film, but it is just like home footage and talking heads i'm curious alexa like from like a film perspective like and you know as someone who loves this genre like how do they make it feel dreadful when the one scary thing we saw was like a police image of a corpse and pretty and it's pretty much other than that it's pretty much just people being like yeah this happened to the camera i think there's partly in i think partly in that usually we do understand these images to be real and to be about a real experience when they're kind of put into this into this kind of framework and this kind of context. So there's something about that that probably in your brain tricks you into believing these things a little bit more than when it's presented in like the kind of more conventional narrative structure of a film and the narrative kind of uh, filmic language. So I think there's part of that that convinces you it's real in the back of your head. And then I also think that part of the beauty of this thing, especially the presentation of this film, is that you are it's really focused on the emotional aspect of this story and how these people have been affected by it that I think conveys something quite powerful because it's people stating things have happened, but it's also people kind of unpacking and dealing with something that they've lived with that I think works really, really nicely in this film. Also, something that gets revealed later on, and I've just realised as I'm talking about this film, I, you know, I, like I ask you that question about the fact that it feels boring at the start and that's the point. One of the the main takeaways from this film, Peach, which you'll understand by the end, is things that are in plain sight, but you don't see them because of your prejudices or because where your attention is drawn. And, and it's intentional that the film seems quite normal when there are these things either happening in plain sight or they're happening just under the surface and we're not seeing them. So it's like the prestige. Oh, yeah. well, you watch a film like this and you're like, oh, fuck, like I love Christopher Nolan, but... This film does so much more with so much less. Mm, <laughs> Doesn't absolutely. need David Bowie playing Nikola Tesla. <laughs> okay, so after the funeral, I've said the strange noises start coming from the house. Mum starts having awful nightmares to the point where she says she doesn't want to wake up from them. Like, she doesn't want to open her eyes because they're so terrifying. And she starts sneaking into other people's houses just to experience normalcy because she hates being in her own house. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not telling you what is and what isn't a red herring, but you can start to see, like, they are throwing, like, everything starts to come out, right? Like, it is not just a simple disappearance. Things are happening. The brother, Matthew, has these unexpected bruises. He goes to the doctor. The doctor can't resolve them. We also, at this point, discover that Matthew is an amateur photographer. And he's been taking background, like, a shot of the backyard, the same shot of the backyard every day some sort of time-lapse project and then one photo it looks like there's an obscure image of alice in it 
Yes, 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 right? yes, yes. And this is when I'm like, it's not just about things under the surface. It's actually about like imagery where it seems like a normal image, but then you see it. Then there's another photo from the dam that they took after Alice's death, well, after Alice's presumed death, with a figure that looks like Alice in the background. So after these weird things start happening, the family is convinced that they need to get the body exhumed because even though the dad confirmed the mum didn't and they're like, we need to confirm it was 100% Alice mm-hmm. and not just somebody. They exhume the body, the coroner confirms it's Alice. Like they will give you these nuggets and then they will take them straight away from you. Like how did you feel the first time you watched Can you remember? Can you remember how you felt the first time watching this film? Um... I think I was pretty chilled by it, if I'm honest. It's it's hard to remember exactly, but I think it's uh, yeah. I can I can only really describe it as chills. Uh, like it, it, I think the word that you used before really wonderfully uh, was it is haunting. It is really haunting. I'm impressed that it has a rewatch value. Like I I tend to feel like whodunity type plot unfolding. Um, films, you're like, okay, we found out who the killer was. Like, we found out what the mystery was. Like, we can all sit around and say The Sixth Sense was a resonant film in pop culture, but perhaps Alexi excluded, none of us has seen it more than once. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that was a crazy twist. Or like, like uh, I, I think it speaks highly of the film that, that we've got people assigning it as friendship homework and that it is more than a mere unfolding of plot and series of red herrings, mm. but like it's resonance. You guys are calling it haunting or chilling. I'm pretty impressed that it has such resonance yeah. for just a sweet little film, even though it doesn't have David Bowie in it. It's, it's very, <laughs> so this is this is where this is where it starts to get interesting, right? I mean, sorry, God, like there are levels to this film, and this is where it probably ramps up another notch. So her older brother Matthew sets up video cameras around the house to record what's happening because. They're like, look, yes, the body was hers, but it feels like we're being haunted. And, you know, like many, many times through the film, we hear the unseen documentary makers ask the family, do they believe in ghosts? Mm. And they have different answers each time. But it feels like they think something's happening. So her older brother sets up video cameras around the house to record what seemed to be images of Alice's ghost. Like on one or two of the video, like these these initial shots, mm. they seem to catch something in the image. It's not like it's not super clear, but it feels like there's something there. So they decide to consult a psychic who's like a like a talkback radio psychic, Ray Kemeny, for insight on the apparent haunting. And again, he he basically comes to the family. They do a really good job of setting up like how his psychic sessions can be part of the film. Because he's like, look, I always videotape my sessions both for my clients so they can, you know, so they can experience what they might not have understood while they were in there because they might be like, you know, under hypnosis or whatever. But for me as well, just in case something unexplained happens and I need to go back and watch it. So we're watching the footage of him talking to them and he can't get quite to the bottom of it. So they decide to have a seance. Matthew films the seance. They're a bit dejected because nothing happens in the seance. Nobody, you know, speaks to them. But the next day, watching the video of the seance, they find an image of Alice in the background in one of the mirrors. I feel like that could be like a jump scare bingo card, you know, mm. a kid's scary drawing or like a nighty that's dirty wanted at an inappropriate time or whatever. 
but I think it's like an underrated spook out, mm. the like zoom in spook out mm. of like the enhance, enhance, enhance. Oh my gosh. Um, I, it, it, it sounds like it's well used in this film and I, and I, and I applaud the creators for doing so. I think what uh, it gets really nicely is there's something to me really creepy about like blown up pixels and I think another movie that an Australian film that has used this really well recently was The Stranger where they have like blown up footage of like CCTV camera footage and stuff and it's just like this huge pixelated Mm. mess that you see on the screen and then your eyes have to kind of slowly interpret what you're seeing there's something about that that really ah I think it's like capturing something you're you're not meant to see even describing it to me now, I'm like getting chills thinking. Yeah. And I just watched it. I just rewatched it again this morning, and I'm getting like chills thinking about it. Sort of analogous to you know being at a campsite or being in the bush at nighttime and like hearing the sound and sort of squinting your eyes to be like, "Am I going to see that scary thing? Oh, am I going to see something scary?" Yeah, okay. It is the truest form of horror because this film is about. I'll say it again. This film is about what is unseen, what is beneath the surface. That you know we're going about our regular lives. And what is happening underneath that is the reality, the real, you know, and that fear that there's something behind us, there's something out to get us. We can't see it. We don't know what it is, especially when you're in the bush, but it's there watching us. So another video is uncovered from the day of the photo sighting at the dam. Remember there was that photo at the dam after she was supposed to have died that looked like her in the background? Again, like a very blurry, pixelated, but... They were like, is that Alice? That's why they got the body exhumed. There's a video from that day and there's a figure in the background wearing Alice's clothes and they're like, fuck, we found Alice. And then when you zoom in on it again, when you blow it up, they're like, that's not Alice, it's a boy. Mm. And they realize it's Matthew. And the dad goes to Matthew to be like, hey, like, what's going on? Explain this to us. And again, this is told through both Matthew and the dad explaining their version of events. And Matthew basically explains, like, all the sightings were him. Like, this is such a good rug pull, right? He's like, mm. those those fake sightings of her at the dam were him. That photo with her, you know, that photo I took every day and then there was a photo with her. I made that using, like, a photographic composite. All the video footage where she's in there, I just used a reflective mirror. He's basically like, I just wanted to give my mum closure. So I tried to make it look like there was a ghost in our house because she never like, she never got closure from identifying the body. So I just tried to make it to give my mum closure. And I, it, that's why I did the things I did. And the interview has this really nice question where it's like, do you think that that has actually given your mum closure or do you think it's made her feel worse? And Matthew's like, it's probably actually made her life worse. Yeah, fucking no shit. Like, dumbest <laughs> idea I've ever heard. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> like, uh, like, is it the opposite of closure? To be like, oh, great, my dead child is now like a ghost. He's <laughs> trapped between realms, <laughs> wandering, <laughs> wandering the spectral scape of yeah, the earth. Exactly. Oh my that god, dumbest like, idiot in film. Okay. Like, I love this film, but fuck, it's a really good point to be like, what are you doing, Matthew? Just let your mum move on. Jesus. All right. Okay. Like I said before, it's a rug pull. We're probably about just over halfway through the film. Okay. And it's like, oh, okay, there's no haunting. There's no ghost. This is just like a brother meaning well, 
but actually prolonging this awful feeling within this household. Uh, And then more revelations come to pass. So first of all, they sort of speak to the fact that the mum and Alice never really had that great a relationship. And it's, it's such a small point, but it feels important to this film. Like, don't you reckon that like the the lineage from Alice's grandma to her mum and to Alice didn't quite, didn't have close relationships. Hmm. Yes. Very hereditary. Yep, I'm with you. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> it's basically hereditary. So they sort of put it to rest, but there's, the mum starts reviewing the footage mm. and realises on one of the video sort of surveillance feeds, there was a moment when Matthew wasn't in the house, but there was still a figure in the room. And they're like, well, okay, that wasn't Matthew making it up. There definitely was one moment where... It could have been her ghost. And again, it's this, they blow up this footage, this like pixelated footage, and they realize, no, that's not Alice. That's a man. And they're like, I recognize that man. It's our neighbor, Brett Tui, crouched in her room six months after she dies. So then it opens up this, like, fuck, this movie is just like. Peach just pulled a great face, by the way. (laughs) Something wafted over him hearing this this yeah, revelation yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even Escalation. in Wikipedia plot synopsis form, this film works, baby. Look, the Joker meant to get captured. Like, I'm there. <laughs> Brent, Brent was in his room. Let's do it. So, so Brad Tui is a neighbour for whom Alice had worked as a babysitter for his two young sons. After the mum searches her bedroom, she's like, what the fuck was Brett? in my, like, dead daughter's bedroom searching for, like, months after she died, she finds a lockbox. She breaks it open and inside finds a hidden videotape. Oh, no, Shaq. This is the part that I'm, like, I find pretty creepy. (sighs) On the tape, Alice is seen... Having like a, I mean, it's not consensual because she's underage, but yeah, having a, risque, a having yeah. a sexual encounter with Brett and his wife. Yeah, to me, uh, I, I've said this a few times, but like snuff is the thing that scares me most, and I think that this film having this like you know faux documentary reality aspect to it all, it that is terrifying. That reveal, like it just it really really lands. But watching a rape scene. I mean, I mean, putting a rape scene at the centre of your m- movie surely busts the documentary. Like, I mean, there's no documentary maker on earth who's putting a rape scene in the middle of their film. Does it jar? Does it jar the tone? Is this kind of like when Parks and Rec forgot that it was a docu a faux documentary for two seasons and it was like, <laughs> oh yeah, fuck. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I haven't seen this as recently uh, as Shag, but I would say that. Um, to me, the beauty of this, it doesn't break the spell. So I can't remember exactly how it does it. I feel like it doesn't really show. I mean, it cuts at the right time to my memory. I mean, this is to me, you're, and Pete, you're absolutely right. No documentary maker would find like a video of a sexual assault and be like, this is, this is gold. Yeah, this let's, is gold. Check yeah. let's check it in. Let's check it in there. <laughs> let's put it in on, you know, like, but what it does do. Is what I was talking about before, where it's like, why this movie's so chilling is it constantly goes, you think you're just looking at something, 
mm-hmm. you're missing what's happening underneath. Yes. And and this is doing that not on the sort of literal level of blowing up and seeing images of her, but being like, oh, like, what was happening? Like, why aren't we talking about what was happening in Alice's life? Right? Like, you know, the fact that she had this distant relationship with her family all of a sudden feels important. And then we soon, like, there's this really great scene where they interview local peers of Alice at a local swimming pool. And they're basically like, yeah, like, now it feels a bit creepy, but at the time, no one really questioned the fact that Brett and his wife had a pool and they would just invite Alice and her friends around for, like, pool parties. And they start to be like, okay, nobody really knows whether this was, like, whether Alice was having, like, a relationship with this couple or, like, you know, what was... And, like, obviously you can't have a relationship. um, That's not what I'm saying. Like, whether this was, like, a prolonged thing or whether this was, like, a one-off but they did think it was weird that she had the videotape and she had kept it in a lockbox and that Brett had broken in and was trying to get it. Almost as if it was like- Almost as if it was evidence of him being a rapist. Like, yeah, what, right? what are we? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. That's, surely that's not surprising. Anyway, sorry. That doesn't surprise me. If I'm, a, if I'm a rapist and I'm at risk of going to jail for a couple of decades, I want to secure the evidence that shows me raping someone. So after this, after this, 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 uh, this moment, the parents go to the police to be like, "Hey, we've we found this new evidence." The police basically say, "We've tried to find. They've moved their house. They've moved away. We can't really find them." But also, you've got evidence of a crime that they probably will be let off on. Like they they'll probably get like a community. So like, there's no linking to the death. Basically, the police are like, "We we can't do anything about this." And I don't know if that would happen in real life. That's what happens in the film. They're basically like, this is a dead end for you. So, mum, this, okay, fuck, like this film, oh my God, it's so good. Peach, you, you don't even know what's happening in this film. You think you know, but you don't fucking know. Can't believe the Joker has two boats and that one of them has prisoners and one of them normal people. <laughs> so, it's crazy. Mum, is now like, what else was she hiding from me? Like, what else mm-hmm. don't I know about her life? Searching Alice's diary, she discovers Ray, the the psychic's card, in her diary. Yeah, okay. And it turns out she had met with Ray months before her death because she was having dreams about drowning, being dead, and her mother being unable to see or help her. Okay. I think it's really important to note, though, even now at this point, watching this film, you have no idea where this is going. But, 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 am I am I picking up what you're laying down? If there's a degree of, like, there's a hiding in plain sight. We've like seen four or five times the answer. To, have I, like, have I heard it in this synopsis? And then, if anyone's listening who hasn't seen the film. Like, do you want to give him 30 seconds thinking time in the, like, in the edit tag <laughs> or anything like, like this? Are we, yeah, okay, well, let's, let's see. If, if I was better at podcasting, I, I think that there would have been some clue that would have given it away. <laughs> I don't think, Alexa, I don't think, like, I, I guess my point is, uh, like, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that the way that they use red herrings quite cleverly and the way they play with supernatural elements and real elements is that, that feeling of dread, that feeling of hauntedness is also a feeling of like, you are as lost as the family. Mm. You don't know what's happening. 
I think one thing that it really captures quite nicely is, and I think it's something that I really am drawn to with like these kind of supernatural horrors, is that it's capturing uh, something that's beyond our understanding and possibly something that does not exist in like a linear space or linear mm. continuum, but it's trying to interpret it linearly, uh, which is the way that we understand it. I think this film does like a very interesting job of that specific thing. So, as we said before, so Ray admits to meeting with Alice. There's a, there's a confrontation, but Ray's basically like, and I don't I like, I don't know if psychics and like are the same as like legal counsel and priests, where he can't reveal. Oh, shag. Psychics aren't the same as legal counsel and priests. <laughs> but he's basically like, he's basically like, I couldn't tell you. Because the psychic's code is that we had our session and now you're having Look, your session. I don't want to give the psychic too much slack, but, <laughs> but like there is, you know, duties of confidence can attach to various pieces of information and, and someone can share something that is confidential. But I feel like just if we're getting on a strict legal interpretation of whether the material shared by the 15-year-old is confidential such that the psychic ought not have disclosed it, the answer to that, I say, is probably that the 15-year-old doesn't have the legal capacity to convey material with a duty of confidence attaching to it. And so the information belongs to, not quite belongs to the parents, but could be disclosed to the parents, certainly after her death, for fuck's sake. If she's dead, um, then her estate needs to be deal with, dealt with and that information falls into her estate, surely. I know Adrian listens to this, and Adrian is literally one of the top five or ten wills and estates practitioners in New South Wales and is an accredited specialist. Adrian, I'd be grateful if you're happy just to DM me or send me an email as to what happens to that conversation. I also just want to know, like, he's a psychic who heard a 15-year-old be like, I think I'm going to die. Then she dies under mysterious circumstances. Surely he's withholding important information. Fuck, is this set in New South Wales? It is. Oh, yes. No, Ararat Ara- is in New South Wales. section 316 of the crime <laughs> death. There's this, there's this crime uh, concealing serious indictable offence. No, sorry, it's not section 316. Well, sorry, it's section 316. I like. I think there's some obligation to disclose. Uh, maybe maybe that obligation doesn't reach to psychics. Yeah, maybe psychics. I don't know if psychics have a legal binding yeah, to be like, oh, I'm a psychic. What, I, what my clients say to me is, is in confidence. I think it's negligent, though. Like, again, not, not to get into the law of negligence. Well, to get into the law of negligence, you, ha- you owe someone a duty of care. So if someone's come to you for help, you probably owe them a duty of care. There's a certain standard of care you offer, and so that care reaches a certain standard, and you can breach that standard. And if your breach causes the damage, then on one, then, then you've been negligent and you ought to come to them in um, – uh, uh, you ought to uh, you know, make good for that damage – I think wrongful death of a child falls within that. I think a claim lies against the psychic. I reckon these parents should be getting legal advice, Shag. There are plenty of no-win, no-fee law firms wow. who handle this. I can't or- wait for Lake Mungo too. This is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what we need. It's like Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. <laughs> so after this happens, you can kind of see the pieces are starting to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Alice's boyfriend comes forward with mobile phone footage of a school trip to Lake Mungo, which is one of the last times Alice was seen. So this is where it gets really interesting, right? So they're living in, like, regional New South Wales. She's a high school student. 
they've gone on a school trip to Lake Mungo because it's this important historical and archaeological site in Australia. And being teenagers, they're all hanging out at night. It's the early days of cell phone cameras, so the footage of yeah, from these cell phones is not clear, right? It's that like pixel. The pixel has returned. <laughs> <laughs> you can barely fucking see what's happening, right? And he's like, look, we've found something that you should probably see that, I, like, I, I, again, none, none of the pieces are like, here's a picture of Alice turning into a goat. Like, there's no, like, smoking gun. It's just like, here's another fucking weird piece of the puzzle that we've discovered. So in this footage, and again, to Alexa's point, it's so important to be like, you can't quite work out what's happening, mm. right? Like, you can't see it. But it looks like Alice is on the ground burying something at the base of a tree. So the Palmers decide to travel to Lake Mungo, and we're in the last, like, 15 minutes of the film, right? Pre-Spooko, like, this is how little the horror-averse among us understand horror. I'd be like, oh, she's obviously burying the amulet of Mumra, <laughs> the ancient <laughs> devil. Like, you know, like, I'd have to conjure up some weird, like, spooky fantasy explanation for this. So sh- this is why I'm so grateful for this podcast. Jag, tell us. Tell us what happens. So the Palmers travel to Lake Mungo, and find the tree where they dig up her mobile phone. The footage on the phone shows her walking along the lake's shore until a figure starts coming forward in the distance. Like, this is probably the spookiest scene in the whole film. So, so basically, this, it, this fuzzy figure keeps coming closer to the screen until we realise... It's Alice, but not alive Alice. Mm. It's corpse Alice from mm-hmm. the police photo. So she has somehow taken footage on her mobile phone of her own corpse, and she's now buried it under a tree in Lake Mungo. Mm. What's weird about this film, right? Like, not weird, but what's what I think is like... Weird for the horror genre, but kind of nice in terms of reality is the family are like, we don't really know what happened, but we think she saw her own demise. We think mm. she, like... Predicted it. Yeah, yeah. To, the, to the point, uh, you know, like say, you know, put before, it's like in, in a non-linear way was able to foresee her own death mm. and probably wanted us to know about it, but wasn't able to communicate that. Yeah, yeah. Even thinking about this now, do you think she drowned or do you think she took her own life in the lake? Oh, I think it's really hard to say because it is that non-linear thing, like the Mm. Ouroboros. Would she have died if she'd never encountered her doppelganger, um, experienced that kind of like... uh, premonition of her own death would she have experienced death um it's interesting because i i actually don't know if there's a definitive answer and i think that's the kind of like the ambiguity of this storytelling that's quite nice i think um i don't know i think there is an aspect where she must have taken her own life because uh how can you not if you've seen how it happens to a 
to, I don't know, it's hard to even put into words like what it is, but it's really, it's, I mean, it's freaking spooky. It's spooky. <laughs> because you put yourself in the situation you uh, suspect you've had a premonition is going to kill you, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, well, let's just proceed into this situation. And it's see now what destiny. It's now yeah, destiny. Okay. It's no longer, free will is no longer attached to it, basically. Yeah. So, so the family, after this, I, I mean, maybe Matthew was right all along because after this they are able to come to terms with her death and they're finally able to move on, right? Like they talk about how they're able to go about their lives. They feel like they understand at least a little bit about what happened, even though they can't really explain it. And eventually they just decide to move out of the house because they think that's what Alice wanted. So they pack up the house and leave. And the final shot of the film is a photo of the family that's now three happily outside the house and then the camera mm-hmm. just zooms in on the window. Nice. To see, fuck, it doesn't even really, like, it, it's funny to describe this because it never really looks like a figure. Yeah. It's just something. It's something. Right, right. So so then it just zooms in on an image in the window to see what we think might be Alice. But that's not the end because we cut to the credits and then over the credits... It does the same thing to photos and found footage shots from the film where we didn't see an outline of Alice. So the whole time you're watching this film, Alice is there, but we don't see her. Like, it's, it's, it's so obscured, we don't see her. And then the final shot's a bit hokey in mm. the, at the very end, there's like a lightning striking, uh, it's like, like a- Almost a post-credits or something to my memory, right? It's basically a post-credits scene, right? Yeah. And there's, like, the image of a woman standing in Lake Mungo and lightning flashes and we just see an outline of a woman. And it's a bit weird. Like, it's totally probably the weirdest moment of this film. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, they pretty much stuck the landing but then they just glued on some weird stuff. (laughs) They they did a weird bow. And then fell over (laughs) on the way home. So, like... I mean, and Alexi will have some useful insights on this, but but if we're trying to circle a definition of horror, I think it's taking the usual and twisting it, right? Mm. Um, but we discussed kids' horror last week, and 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 I, I think the distinction here becomes useful because if we take a kids' horror example versus what we might call traditional horror or grown-ups horror, and and you take the example of let's say a doppelganger, you take something usual, your parent, you replace it with something horrific, a monster out to get you. The way it ends in a traditional horror or grown-up horror is, guess what? The monster that killed your parents and is now coming to kill you. And then the outcome in kids' horror is, don't worry, it was fine in the end. Um, So if we're talking about the execution of traditional horror, we're talking about the feeling you are left with, the sort of absence of resolution, the absence of safety at the conclusion of the experience. So at the end of Jumanji, don't worry, everyone's back in the game. It's fine. Um, at the end of fucking whatever hereditary payment's going to come and eat your soul. So, like, like I feel like it, words like chilling, words like haunting, and then having a credit sequence that's so aggressively, assertively like, hey, the mystery continues, I think is a pretty artful way and a pretty engaging way of centering this as, as a leading piece of work in what we might call traditional horror or grown-up horror. I can see why it was assigned as friendship homework. I give this movie three and a half spooks out of out of four. Wow. 
classic stuff. Wow. Just bring it, bring it back to the beginning. And I think it's so mm. interesting you started with that Stan Grant quote. I, I do feel like there's something interesting in a film that talks about things hiding under the surface, right? So there are things in plain, there are things we just ignore in the film. And it does that quite well, literally, by having all these images of her that we just don't see. Mm. But there's also the fact that she had this really quite troubled and I guess sad life that isn't really spoken about until she's dead and we discover things about her life, right? Mm. And and it's just there. It's hiding in plain sight. It's hiding under the surface. And the fact that you would set this in, like, or, or you would make Lake Mungo the centerpiece of this, the, the location of some of Australia's oldest, you know, inhabitants in a country where we just kind of deal with the fact of, you know, what happened to our original ha- inhabitants sort of like 200 plus years ago and the fact that they're still dealing with those ramifications and we just go about everyday life. Yes, yes, we 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 try to be aware of it and we talk about it, but it's just a reality that we live in. I think that's a really conscious choice. So, Alexi, if you had to watch this film or Barbie or Oppenheimer, <laughs> which, which would, <laughs> how would you rate the three? Oh, out of the three, I I mean, they all have value. I think that, I mean, like I said, I really like films as artifacts, and this one is an artifact now. So, this is the one that I'll always revisit. Who knows? Maybe in three years' time, I'll re- be revisiting them all together as the greatest triple feature to ever <laughs> come across my home cinema screen. Bob and Heim go. Can I, can, I, can I give you a question without notice? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not the question, the one I just okay. posed. So, I'm <laughs> going to give you a question without, without notice. Yeah. This is the notice of the question without notice. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask if you've got advice for the horror-averse or if you've got strategies or if there are people in your life you've bumped into who are like, yeah, hey, it's not for me, or or if you've got a little syllabus, you might assign them. Uh, I mean, my line is that I, I spent a number of years bumping into people who are like, I don't like Drake, and I'm like, that's okay, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to hold your hands through yep. this. We're going to start with 5 a.m. in Toronto, and like, we're just going to go up from there, and it's going to be fine. Have you got like a syllabus or an approach or a suggestion to make for the horror horror-verse slash horror-curious? I think that uh, what I would probably start with is almost like quite apropos is I would start with horror aimed at children first because it's kind of talking about like the um, fears that are kind of intrinsic and fears that maybe you have already conquered that uh, would be really nice. For Australians, you got to start with Around the Twists, I think is like where to go. You start with Around the Twist. And Jumanji is the what I was use like the great example of kids' horror. So I was so I stole happy that from to you, hear. by the way. Oh, Alexi, did I stole you? that reference yes. from you 100%. I was going to say, yeah. wow, I love that someone shares my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I actually think Jumanji is a really, really great one. And then I would probably go gentler. I would kind of think about things where you go, well, supernatural stuff's not real if you're of that opinion. And so you can kind of have fun playing with that. And then there's stuff like the stuff that I will put really far at the end is kind of like, um, you know, the stuff that's like more home invasion-y type shit where you go, mm. oh, that could be my actual fear. Yeah, okay. Like, you know, someone... I remember I watched a movie and it was not a home invasion movie. I saw a Japanese horror film when I would have been like 16 or 17's Pulse. Do you, have you done yeah. a movie Pulse? Yeah. Um, it's like more of a supernatural horror, but it scared me so much. And the thought, the invasive thought that came into my head was, 
oh, a door could not just stop some maniac from coming into my home. Like, <laughs> it's not like I live in a sacred place that stops, like, things with a chalk outline that can s- stop any kind of menacing force enter my void. It's like, no, no, no. It's just all that shit is made up and people can just walk in and kill you. And it really, uh, it was like one of the most existential thoughts I ever had was like, oh, yeah, oh, could just die at any oh, moment, God. I guess, with the thought that I actually had. <laughs> all right, uh, Alexi, totally up. You can find him currently on special features being released at weekly. Yeah, that's a weekly pod. Weekly at the moment, yeah. And I, I would also say I love to spook her fans. I hosted a screening of Talk to Me, an Australian horror movie, a few weeks ago, and multiple people came up to me saying they knew me from Spooko. Fuck off! Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> How, can I also ask because you know you're moving away from just talking about film to talking about pop culture. By just dipping into DJ Khaled's Insta the other day, I realized he's now super into golf and all his posts are like, wow. here's my golf bag and whatever. <laughs> and it, ma- it made me realize that pop culture as a thing is so huge mm-hmm. that you can never be across everything. How do you decide what to cover each week? Uh. I think what we're doing now is stuff that's int- of interest to us. Because I had okay. a similar thought where um, Cam and I went, to- we were walking around Darling Harbour and there was a giant poster billboard for like some huge artist that was going to play the uh, the convention center. I had no idea who it was. My brain couldn't retain since then who the person was. And I was just like, fuck, there's someone that's so famous. They're going to sell like thousands of seats and I don't know who they are. I still don't know who they are. They immediately swept from my brain. And it was a thought where I was like, well, I guess I'm never going to learn every reference anymore. I'm not going to be on top of everything. So it's all about the stuff that I guess we're finding interesting or things we want to talk about. Um, And if people send us stuff, that we find that we go, oh, this is something that I think is we, something we've got to talk about. That's part of it too, I guess. I've made a submission like six to nine months ago, and I'm concerned it's gone to the bottom of the pile. <laughs> oh, what was um, the submission? I mean, is it, we've heard, I think six months ago we weren't podcasting, so maybe that's why it's falling There's away. this roller coaster called the Orphan Rocker in the Blue Mountains. It's called the Orphan Rocker? The Orphan Rocker. is a messed up name. <laughs> Tim, Tim Levinson, Earth Boy, has done an amazing song about it. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a slightly spookily abandoned roller coaster with like an interesting backstory. Right. And I've so just, you can't I'll, ride it anymore. Well, I think someone needs to investigate. Really, oh is like, it's probably like who who even knows? Wow. Who so I got to jump on a cart and get camp to push it <laughs> and see what happens. Yes, let gravity take its course. You've got to get out of here. You're being pulled in a thousand directions. We so so appreciate your time. Everyone, go listen to special features. Alexi, can't wait to drag you on right now for another one. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up? Are you guys going to record another episode now? We are going to record another episode now. Do you want to stick around? What are you talking about? We're going to talk about a film uh, called Host. Oh, the Bong Joon-ho movie? No, no, we've done that already. So The Zoom one? The 55-minute oh. Zoom one on Shutter. Wow, I like that movie a lot. Let me read you my thoughts that I wrote down from Host so you can have it as a little tease at the end of this episode. Oh, sick. Please. Yes.
I think I love screen life films. I was big on fan footage, and this is the next step in that evolution. This is such a satisfying little rip of a horror film. Great piece of lockdown creativity. So you're going through the nice lineage of faux documentary to screen life horror. Hell yes. Born to curate, born for pop culture. Thank you, Alexi. My pleasure.